Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Shalom and welcome to Parashat Bar in the desert. The address is Numbers chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 4 verse 20. The reading date is for Shabbat and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman. The written commentary was updated on May 22nd of 2006. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai loheinu melech haolam, asher bachar banu mikol ha'amim, venatan lanu et torato. Baruch atah Adonai notein ha'torah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Welcome to a brand new book of the Torah, the book of Numbers, or the uh, Hebrew title suggests Bimidbar. It means in the desert. And uh, we're going to begin the fourth book of Moshe um, in anticipation for all the rich nuggets that lay in store for us. We've completed um, our third book of the, uh, book of, of the set of five. We made it through Leviticus thus far and hope you are um, excited about the journey that we're on. Uh, walking our way through each of the five books of Moses, chapter by chapter, um, just just seeing what uh, God has uh, has in store for us there. I I like you um, don't know every. Uh, uh, I'm not as familiar with every part of the Bible as I should be, um, but I think it's important that we as students. Um, become familiar with the foundational parts of the Bible, and that includes the five books of Moses. For therein lies the um, the core and central concepts that God handed down to Israel. And in doing so, he then um, expected the subsequent leaders of Israel to, um, to, to uh, as it were, um, build upon that without, without, without taking away from or without adding to. Remember, the Torah forbids us from adding to or taking away from the very words of the Bible. And so we have the sub subsequent generations who were familiar with the five books of Moses the writings that Moses had handed down, and in being familiar with them, they were able to make um, uh, rulings and judgments and and uh, come up with the halacha and things like that. And that's really where we're picking uh, up our um, uh, inspiration from. That's where we're. That's the example we're following into as we read through these books. 
Now, it is true that some books carry um, more relevant uh, commandments than other books. For instance, the book of Leviticus um, had lots of, uh, lots of commandments to, to deal with uh, or uh, outlined for the priests, the, 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 you know, the, the, the uh, tribe of Levi, and thus the name of the book, Leviticus. As we get to Numbers, however, we're going to find a stark contrast. There's not a lot of commandments so much as there is just narrative, prose. Now, the English title, Numbers, comes from the fact that the initial chapters begin with a consensus. Uh, I'm sorry, not a consensus, a census. <laughs> a census which is taken of the entire assembly of Am Yisrael, the people of Israel. Now, parasha uh, is very informative where the tribes are concerned. So if you have questions about the... Um, uh, the makeup and the um, um, the numbering or the ordering of of the tribes of Israel. This is a good book to study for that information. Historically, the people stood poised, as as it were, right now, to enter into the land which God, of course, promised to them through the Avot, through the fathers. We have Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov forming the backbone of the promises that God gave to Israel. And as a result, the people are ready to go in. They come out of Egypt in Exodus. Um, they made their way through the desert, and they are, you know, they constructed a mishkan so that they could um, be ready to to meet with God whenever God would um, um, call them, the tabernacle. And now, in the book of Numbers, we're ready to go in, and yet we're going to find that the book of Numbers takes a takes a, takes a sour turn. Um, I don't mean to prejudice the book before we even get into it, but we know what happens. The people reject God's invitation of going in due to fear and lack of faith, and as a result, God causes that first generation to wander through the wilderness for 38 years. We've got the bookends, the first year and the last year. Thus, we usually just call it the 40 years of wandering. However, um, God, in his faithfulness, does allow the children to go into the land and see the goodness and mercy that he had promised to the fathers. Um, so, uh, with with that, with mixed feelings, we enter into the book of Numbers. As they are making their way into the land, now it's evident that there are inhabitants in the land already. In fact, that's the very reason why the people are reluctant to go in, because they see the people, or the spies, see these, these, um, these inhabitants of the land, the giants, the Anakim. Um, the, you know, and, and the people get fearful, and the people say, well, you know, we're just grasshoppers in their sight. War is inevitable. War is, is it's, it's, there are, there's going to be a conflict. In other words, I've heard a preacher say it this way. When God gives you a promise, you can bet that there's going to be a conflict between the adversary and the promise that God hands to you. And so if you want to press into the promises of God, then uh, you know pastors are fond of telling us that you have to fight for that which God gives you. And the uh, promises here given to Israel are no different. I'm going to give you the land, God says to Israel. However, there are inhabitants in the land, and you're going to have to fight them. Now, don't worry, God says, I'm going to be with you. So war with the immediate inhabitants of the land was inevitable. However, this was a war in which God had already promised the outcome. God is going to give the land to Israel. And Hashem was masterfully preparing a suitable army of those 20 years and older who would be able to go in and fight. Thus, the numbering at the very beginning of the book makes sense now. God's... Um, having Moshe uh, single out, as it were, the fighting men. Let's take a look at the big picture for the book of Numbers um, before we jump into any particulars. Um, this next section is entitled, The Big Picture. 
if you stop and think about it, no matter who we're talking about, if we're talking about adults or we're talking about children, the discontented whining can be difficult to ignore, whether we're talking about children or adults. And in this case, we're, we're talking about Israel. Um, Israel whined. Israel complained. Israel groaned. And um, Israel in the wilderness characterizes the book of, of, of Numbers. Listen to this overview. Again, um, I don't want to prejudice the book and say that it's something that we should avoid reading. By all means, we should be reading the book. However, it doesn't have a lot of commandments. Rather, it has a lot of narrative. The book picks up where Exodus leaves off. So it's odd that we have Leviticus sandwiched between Exodus and Numbers. But on a narrative scope, um, it, it really goes Exodus and then Numbers. Israel is camped at the base of Mount Sinai. That's where we, um, that's where we pick up the reading in uh, the book of Numbers here. And from here, the people journeyed into the wilderness, which the Hebrew word wilderness is Bamidbar. They journeyed into the wilderness of Paran, which is south of the Promised Land. Scouts, if you'll remember, were sent to explore the land and give a report of its inhabitants. And, of course, when they returned to the camp, their report was not favorable. We had 12 spies, one from each um, tribe. And 10 of the 12 gave a non-favorable report. They said... Maybe they were just pragmatic. Maybe they were just doubtful. Either way, they demonstrated a lack of faith in God by um, giving a report that the people... Uh, it gave the people the impression that the promises that God was making to them were less than true, or they were less than accurate. Maybe God um, didn't understand what the people were up against. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what was going through the people's mind. But at any rate, the people began to doubt Hashem's ability to give them their inheritance. And as a result, human nature kicks in. What happens when people doubt? Well, the next thing they do is complain. They whine. They, they grumble. They mumble. Um, or as, um, as, again, one preacher I heard growing up, he said they murmured. And then he, um, as, a, as a kind of an exercise, he said, you want to know what murmur murmuring's like? And he had the entire congregation go, murmur, 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 murmur. Everybody was doing it, like, you know, um, at their own pace. Murmur, murmur, murmur. And when you got like 100 or 200 people in a church going, murmur, 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 it sounds really stupid. And so the, the, it was like an exercise for us to remember or for us to get an idea of what it was like for God to have to listen to the murmurings of the children of Israel. Now because of their, um, their sin, because really they weren't just complaining that uh, the, the land was too vast or that the giants in the land were too big, they were actually leveling a charge, as it were, against God that this can't be done. God says, you can do it. The people basically said, no, we can't do it. It can't be done. And in essence, they were um, doubting the providence and the, um, what is it, doubting the, 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 the competence of God. And so, doubt is a sin. And as a result of their sin, God condemned them to wander in the wilderness until the generation of kvetchers, the, the generation of, of whiners and complainers, until they died off and a new generation, which was their children, took their place. Forty years, and we're familiar with this story, forty years um, they wandered around the desert. Um, I've heard it said, I can't confirm it, but I've heard it said that the journey from Egypt to the Promised Land is, if, if you were to just go straight through, stopping for camping and allowing for three million plus people, um, of which Israel numbered, if you were to journey through that, um, that space, it should only have taken about 11 or 12 days to do the journey. 
because the distance isn't that far. It's not like God asked them to go from Egypt to, say, Madagascar or, or the southern or South Africa. You know, he didn't ask them. He, he didn't ask them to take a journey that should take 40 years. And so the wandering was supernatural. It's it's the um, it's a picture of both God's uh, judgment as well as God's grace at the same time. Because even though they wandered for 40 years, you'll remember, their shoes didn't wear out and they actually did have food to eat and uh, um, provision for their cattle and things like that. They just, they just simply walked until their bones dropped into the sand. But 40 years later, or 38 years later, how the rabbis put it, their, um, their, their children slowly made their way back to Canaan, back to Canaan. Now, this time, the children, learning, having learned the lesson of the parents, the disobedient adults, they're ready to obey the commandments of the Lord. They're, they're ready to actually walk into um, the statement that they made way back in Exodus chapter 19, where they said, all that you've said we will do. Remember that statement? Kind of premature, don't you think? Uh, and so, in this overview, again, after winning some important campaigns east of the Jordan River, uh, Am Yisrael is actually prepared to enter the heart of the promised land that they had waited so long to see. We are very familiar, you and I reading the Torah portions, are very familiar with the 40 years of wandering uh, that we read in these chapters. And um, the number 40, if you'll recall, it shows up in different places in the text, not just here in the book of Numbers, but um, it shows up in other places in the Bible. Number 40 seems to signify or signal trials or testing or endurance. Um, sometimes it signifies punishment, if you'll recall. Um, this is the 40 years that God said, because you doubted my word and did not go in when I told you to go in, I'm going to punish you. And it's funny, if you read the book, you'll find that um, after they receive this warning and this punishment, then they say, okay, okay, we'll go in, we'll go in. And God says, nope, sorry, door's closed. You should have gone when I told you to go. And as a result, the people can't get in. So it's a lesson in going when God says to go and waiting when God says to wait. If you'll remember from your reading of the apostolic scriptures, 40 is also the number of days that Yeshua spent in the wilderness being tested um, uh, both by the adversary as well as by his own human nature. 40 years to, um, to uh, uh, wander around the desert. 40 days for Yeshua to wander around the desert. So the signal of 40 is, is uh, similar in both cases where we have this kind of a testing or trials. Moshe was on the mountain for, twice for 40 days and 40 nights. And uh, both times he was supernaturally sustained. For indeed the text tells us that he didn't have food or water. So I imagine it was also kind of a testing and a trial. But at the same time he was, um, he was fellowshipping with Hashem. Let's turn to the stone edition Tanakh and see what it has to uh, add concerning insights to the book of Bamidbar. I don't have the footnote to where I pulled this quote, and I don't have a stone edition to knock anymore. I need to pick one of those up. I've, over the years, I, I've, I've given some resources away. I've lent resources out to people, and um, I don't get all of my resources back. So I had a stone edition. I need. I don't have one anymore. So um, I need to get one. <laughs> okay. Uh, the Book of Numbers, this is a quote from the Stone Edition Tanakh, quote, The Book of Numbers begins and ends with Israel on the verge of entering its land. But the 38 intervening years of wandering in the wilderness were a low point in Jewish history. The book contains the episodes of the spies who poison the minds of the people, the rebellion of Korah and his assembly, and the error of Moshe and Aharon that cost them the privilege of entering the land. But it also ends with the first step in the conquest of 
the land of Israel, end quote. Now, I want to mix my own comments um, in italics in this um, next section with theirs as they continue to add, quote, in Talmudic and rabbinic literature, uh, literature the book is known as Chumash HaPekudim, Chumash HaPekudim, the book of Numbers, um, because as previously mentioned, one of its major themes is the census of the people. In the first few chapters of a parasha, the members of the tribes were counted individually, as every Jew passed in front of Moshe and Aharon and presented proof of his tribal descent. What an awesome experience it must have been for even the humblest Jew to stand before his two leaders, the greatest prophet who ever lived, next to Yeshua, of course, and God's holy servant, to identify himself and to receive their blessing and their guidance. They go on to say, Once counted, the tribes were arrayed around the Mishkan, the tabernacle, demonstrating that the Shekhinah, the manifest presence of Hashem, was their rallying point, the central focus of the nation then and always. For Jews are a nation by virtue of the gracious giving of the Torah of Hashem, and it is their raison d'etre. By accepting it, they become a people. It's the reason for their existence. Um, the, the, the phrase there. By accepting it, they became a people, and by following it, they remain a people. To disown the covenant, speaking of the commandments, to disown the covenant is to fall outside of the calling of being a covenant people. They conclude with this important statement. Um, Hashem does not operate outside of covenants. And I might add my own words. Historically for today, His grace and mercy operate only within the scope of the covenant that His son Yeshua HaMashiach has initiated. End quote. So, here we now have our overview of the book of Numbers, basically. Again, I don't wish to prejudice the book and have you consider that it is a, um, a book not worth reading. Obviously, we need to study every word of, of God's uh, instructions to us and seek to understand how we can better uh, um, uh, communicate and relate with our God and with one another. Here in the wilderness, however, the people were to encamp around the Mishkan uh, before they go into the land. They are to encamp around the tabernacle, which, if you remember, contained the tablets of the ten words. And um, the tabernacle was, um, was, was a place where God met with Israel. And within the tabernacle, we had the, the Holy of Holies, that compartment where within that room, we had the, um, the Holy, the, I'm sorry, the, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant. Within the Ark of the Covenant, there were the tablets. Now, Israel was commanded to march with this tabernacle. In essence, march, march with the, uh, the, um, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant itself. They were commanded to march with it wherever God led them. God would lead them here and there. Whenever God's Spirit told them to pick up camp, they would pick up camp. Whenever God told them to, to um, put up, set up camp, they would set up camp. So in one sense, they did wander, but in another sense, they were being led. This, this, this late motif of, of Jewish nationhood would uh, continue throughout its history. God leads Israel by means of his words and by means of his spirit. The word and the spirit working together. Um, God is interested in dwelling with his people. And God is interested in taking his people where he's going to send them. And namely, in this case, into the promised land where they would dwell securely. But, but once God led them into the promised land, he did not plan on just leaving them. 
he planned on staying with them once they were there, living with them, dwelling with them, abiding with them. And so um, this becomes the picture that we uh, are trying to uh, uh, get to in the book of Numbers. Israel knows that God wants to be with them. That's what he said when he told them to build the Mishkan in Numbers, I'm sorry, in Exodus chapter 25. If you build it, I will dwell among you, to paraphrase the term there. And so Israel knows that this is where they need to be. However, getting there is a different matter. And um, that becomes a lesson for us today. We all know that God wants to dwell with us. We all know that God wants us to dwell with him. And yet, arriving at that point is a different story. Um, there are many obstacles to overcome on our journey. So maybe we can be a bit more gracious as we read um, the children of Israel and the um, obstacles that they have to face. Maybe we can be a bit um, more understanding rather than, as I've heard sometimes, just looking down on them and saying, shaking our head, shame on that generation for, for doubting that, that God could take them in. As we be, read through the book of Numbers, let's remember that Israel were, the Israelites were humans just like we are. And they faced everyday um, trials just like we do, everyday disappointments um, and fears and, and, and uh, uh, anxiety just like we face. And so perhaps we might ask ourselves, how would we have done in the um, exact same situation? It has been aptly stated, as I close up this last section, that, um, quote, more than the Jews have preserved the Sabbath, the Sabbath has preserved the Jews. And what I mean by the Sabbath there is just a, um, one of the multiple uh, commandments that we find in the Torah, but the Sabbath is, is kind of like a picture of the covenant itself, the promise that God made to his people. Sabbath, ultimately, as we're going to see later on, um, becomes the, uh, the picture of rest. It actually becomes a type and shadow of the land. When God says, if you will obey me, you'll enter into my rest. The rest that he's referring to is the land. The book of Hebrews chapter 4 uses the same um, Midrashic principle when speaking of the people that because they did not obey God, because they lacked faith in God, he swore that they wouldn't enter into his rest. And the entering in and the rest described there is not just the land, but on the physical level it is the land. But ultimately it means rest from their enemies, rest from their fears, their anxieties. It means rest in God. So, let's move on. It's about 20 minutes into the commentary, and the commentary is only five pages long, um, four, pla four pages plus my closing, so I don't think I'm going to um, break the commentary off just yet. I I'll probably just read it through in one setting, okay? Let's keep going. This next section is entitled, The Worth of a Man. We're going to begin to talk about how that Israel is comprised of people. But if you think about it, the people are comprised of individuals. The individuals are the people that we're reading about. We shouldn't just kind of um, get this idea that Israel is just this, this non-personal um, non people group. Each individual person had their own um, trials and struggles and, 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 and fears to face um, as they went into the land that, that God promised to them. Rashi, that great commentator, Rabbi Shlomo Itzaki, notes at the beginning of the book that God counted the nation at every significant turn. And why does God count the nation? Why do we have these this census showing up here? Because it's God's way of demonstrating that he loves the nation of Israel. And because he loves the nation of Israel, he wants, he wants to demonstrate to them that he's interested in each and every single 
individual Israelite. And that again is a challenge for us today. We often read the book and we just think of the collective people as um, either being dis disobedient or stubborn. We don't really sometimes stop to realize that these are real people just like you and me. Individuals with, again, with family, with children, with concerns, um, with real life, uh, um, real life messes, just like we get ourselves into. So, the fact that the people were counted as individuals in this book, at least right at the beginning, proves the infinite worth of every single person. Um, Rashi would say every single Jew. I might say every single Jew and non-Jew. And it also sets the precedent for God's underlying love to see every one of his created subjects return to a loving relationship with him through his unique and only Son. We know the verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever... God is not just simply interested in um, whole nations or whole family groups. God demonstrates that he's interested in each and every individual. Certainly, if you think about it, it would have been easier and quicker to count the people in mass. you know, um, And that would have been the proper course if all that mattered were sheer numbers. In other words, if, if the census was just something like this, okay, um, Moshe were to just tell the leaders, okay, go um, to your individual families and to your individual tribes, count yourselves and bring the number back to me. But instead, we find that each and every person passed under the rod of Moshe, as it were. Moshe was able to count being the hand of God. Moshe was able to count, as it were, each and every individual Israelite personally. And that is a demonstration of God's care and concern for each and every individual. Um, if, if it were just, again, if it were just sheer numbers that God were interested in, then we would, have not have had, we would not have had the individual count. But that would have caused the individual, if, let's say they would have counted them in mass, we still would have gotten the numbers. The, the, um, the end result would have been the same. We still would have got the numbers. But that would have caused the individual person to be an insignificant member of the total community, and it would have obscured his personal responsibility to grow and to contribute to the community as an individual. So it's an important lesson here. If you're listening to the commentary and you feel like you don't matter in the scheme of things, if you feel like you're just an insignificant number in the, uh, in, the, in the bigger picture, well, I want you to understand that God has demonstrated over and over again that he's not just interested in sheer numbers. God is interested in individuals. Each tribe had its own uniqueness to contribute to the national well-being, and as a result, each individual was precious in his own right. In chapter 2 and verse 2 of this uh, book, we read, quote, Each person shall camp near the banner, carrying his paternal family's insignia. They shall camp at a distance around the communion tent, end quote. Now let's, um, let's comment on this, this Pasuk itself. Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, um, he, was, uh, he lived from 1865 to 1935. He's the first chief rabbi of the land of Israel. In fact, he was actually um, appointed that position before Israel became a state, if you'll notice the dates there. He had these insightful words to add concerning the tribes and the banners that they bore. Let's talk about that. Let's read his quote. Um, and I lift his quote... If you look at the footnote on the bottom of page 4, this is adapted from the Midbar Shur, pages 24 through 25. They read, quote, 
Throughout their sojourn in the desert, the Israelites were commanded to set up their tents around the tribal flags. This must have been something uh, quite interesting to see. Uh, Rav Cook asks the question, what is the significance of these banners? The Midrash says that the inspiration for the banners came from Sinai. The revelation of the Torah was attended by 22,000 chariots of angels, each one decked out with flags. That's what a banner is, a, um, a, uh, a guide, uh, as it were, a, um, a guide on, or a, uh, um, a banner, um, a, uh, a standard, as it were, the colors, the colors of the flag. The Israelites immediately desired to have flags just like the angels, and God agreed. Um, quote, he brought me to the winehouse, and his banner over me is love. And that's, of course, from the Song of Songs, um, Shir HaShirim, chapter 2, verse 4, end quote. The Midrash indicates that banners relate to some intrinsic aspect of angels, though not of people. But the Midrash leaves us with many questions. What does it mean that the angels bear flags? Why does the verse refer to Sinai as a winehouse? And what is the connection between banners and between love? Um, Rav Cook goes on to, to uh, state, the Zohar states, that the banners of the four major encampments in each direction, that is to say north, south, east, and west, because if you remember, that's how the Israelites were commanded to um, lay out their encampment. Um, these directions, north, south, east, and west, correspond to the four faces of the mystical chariot mentioned in the beginning of Ezekiel. These four faces are fundamental divine attributes. Thus, each encampment related to a particular divine attribute. What is an angel? Rav Cook asks us. Well, the Hebrew word malach literally means messenger. That's what an angel is, a messenger. The very essence of an angel is to fulfill a particular divine mission. An angel cannot perform a task, important though it may be, other than the specific mission for which it was designated. Are we following his, mid, uh, his midrash so far? Rav Cook is um, drawing us towards a, a, a midrashic conclusion. And if you don't get it at the end of Rav Cook's uh, commentary, I'll go ahead and paraphrase it for you. Uh, Rav Cook goes on to conclude, quote, The people desired flags like those the angels bore at Sinai. They wanted a, every individual to be able to choose a form of divine service which suits his personality, just as each angel executes a very specific function as defined by his flag, end quote. Uh, Rav Cook is basically, again, Midrash is just that. It's a, it's a homily. It is um, it's allegory. It's not necessarily exactly what the text is teaching, but in fact it is um, utilized as a tool to maybe teach us perhaps a greater spiritual truth or maybe just a, um, an important lesson about the text that we may not have otherwise seen if we would not have utilized the Midrash. Midrash, in this case, is, is uh, hinting at the fact that because the angels are specifically chosen to carry out specific missions for God, and God knows them individual, individually. He doesn't just send um, um, generic angels to do generic um, uh, tasks. Rather, he sends a specific angel to do things which God is accomplishing. In like manner, in the Midrash, the uh, children of Israel wanted to be as angels, as it were, and go about doing God's bidding. Thus, they um, desired to have their flags. Again, um, this testifies of the uniqueness and the importance of each and every single individual in God's economy. I can't stress that fact enough. I think people these days like to attend mega churches 
because they get the idea that they can just hide in the crowd. If I show up, sit in the back, don't say anything, and then leave just before the invitation, no one will really notice me. And as a result, the pastor won't call on me to do something that I don't want to do. I'll just go to church, do my time, and then when all is said and done, I can say to God, at least I was there. And I think, you know what? We're, we're fooling ourselves if that's the picture that we paint when it comes to having a genuine relationship with God. God is so much more interested in just our showing up for church and warming a pew or showing up for synagogue and uh, 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 being there, sitting in the back. God is interested in us as an individual. God wants to know us personally. Each and every person has been endowed with with wisdom and with a special and unique gift mix so that we can accomplish a specific task that God has called us to do. And you know what? The community uh, at large, the church that we attend, the synagogue that we hold membership with, they will suffer if we fail to press in and avail ourselves of the Spirit of God so that we can accomplish the task that God has called for us to do. You listening to my podcast today, have you ever gone and done a survey of your spiritual giftings? Do you know how, how God has uniquely constructed you and wired you so that you can do the things that God is asking you to do? Things that no one else is designed to do? Do you know what those gifts and callings are? Do you know what those tasks entail? If you don't, I challenge you. Go and meet with a um, one of the leaders of your community, your pastor or your youth pastor or your um, or the assistant pastor or or one of the ministry team leaders, and ask them if if they can help and assist you in in uncovering the truths and the gifts that are locked in with locked 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 up with inside you. I use the term locked up because some of us aren't aware of what they are. I can promise you that you are a wonderfully unique person in God's eye in, in God's eyesight and as a result you've got a special task that the community needs. This is in fact what the New Testament teaches us. This is not my commentary by the way. This is I'm just speaking freely. The apostolic scriptures inform us that um, each one of us has been uniquely gifted so that we can build up the community so that the community itself can benefit and become perfected and as we can be, um, as it were, um, brought together so that the world can see that God is one. We have got to do our, our, our individual part. We, each one of us has got to uh, realize the worth of ourselves, the worth of a man as it were, and stop um, listening to this lie that says that um, it's just about numbers. It's a shame that many pastors have fallen into that trap and all that they are concerned about these days is swelling the numbers within their communities. God is certainly more interested than numbers. He's interested in individuals. This testifies um, of the, the speaking of the um, of the, uh, the information that we're reading about here in Numbers. It testifies, if I go back to my commentary, of the uniqueness and the importance of each and every single individual in God's economy. We shall see that this is fully developed, this concept that we are all unique and that we all play an important part. We're going to see that this is fully developed as God himself makes provision for each and every human, every Jew, and every Gentile to join his wonderful family. God calls us. God desires a relationship with each and every one of us. And God knows how we are going to best fulfill the role that he has designed for us in the community. All we have to do is surrender to His Spirit. Each 
person is precious in his own right. Each person is an individual. Each person is important. So it remains true today, as has been demonstrated by Yeshua's obedience, even unto death. Let's read some verses from the Apostolic Scriptures. Let's start with John 3.16. I just quoted it, but let me go ahead and read it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only and unique Son, so that everyone who trusts in him may have eternal life instead of being utterly destroyed. End quote. God sent his Son so that each and every individual might experience the fullness of what God has in plan for him. Are you feeling insignificant today? Look at these passages. I want them to minister to you. I want them to cause you to realize that you are very, very special in God's eyes. Don't go around moping. Don't go around complaining. Don't grumble like the children of Israel did, thinking that there's nothing, that there, that there's nothing worth living for and that everything is just going to turn out bad. You should have a positive outlook in life. Let's read another passage here in Romans chapter 10. Quote, For the passage quoted says that everyone who rests his trust on him, speaking of Yeshua, will not be humiliated. humiliated. That means that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Adonai is the same for everyone, rich toward everyone who calls on him, since everyone who calls on, it, on the name of Adonai will be delivered. End quote. That's Romans 10 verses 11 through 13 as quoted from the uh, CJB. God is interested in each and every individual. God created us unique. If God wasn't interested in each and every individual then he would have just made us all out of the same cookie cutter die or the same cookie cutter stamp and we would all be the same. We'd be like robots, right? All having the same um, uh, the same functions, the same features, just maybe different serial numbers. But God did not make us the same. Each and every person is unique in his own right. And I'm very excited as I, as I dwell on this concept that each and every individual is unique. Because every time I meet a new believer in Messiah, I, I can't help but realizing that there's something new and unique that they can share with me just as much as there's something new and unique that I can share with them. Each and every one of us has something to share with one another. And we are vitally important to one another because we belong to the same community. Let's read one more verse out of 2 Peter this time. Quote, For it is not his purpose that anyone should be destroyed, but that everyone should turn from his sins. End quote. That's 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the last half of that, of that verse. We see again by this verse that God does not desire that anyone perish. And it's not just for the sake of salvation. It's because each and every one of us is uniquely worthwhile in God's sight. And the loss of anyone is um, it's tantamount to a loss for the community. To lose one person is uh, to experience a loss in the community. Judaism has um, captured and preserved this notion whenever a person dies then um, a soul is lost in the world. And in that loss, the community suffers because we'll never be able to um, share in the gifting that that individual presented to the community. So we see as we draw our, commu our commentary um, today to a close, we see that God is interested in each and every individual, not just whole tribes. When you hear the term numbers, as in the book of numbers, it's not just about numbers. It's not just about whole people groups. 
It's about individuals. Now, it's true that this book tells how the nation slid and an entire generation had to remain in the wilderness and expire, and that's a shame. But their children emerged strong and courageous, still gathered around the Mishkan and ready to claim its destiny as the heirs to the blessings of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Amen. Amen. The closing blessing for our commentary is as follows. The closing blessing for the Torah, I might add. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan lanu Torah temet vechaye olam nata patochinu. Baruch atah Adonai noten haTorah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. You have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.